0: And our message today will begin in verse 13. This is going to be the final message in our message series, um, long story short, where we've been working through the Gospel of Mark and we've been looking especially at the issue of discipleship, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And today I want to take just a little different angle or approach on an important theme that most all of us in this room are thinking about as we especially think about discipleship. Today I want to talk about the elephant and the donkey in the room. Now, I was told a long time ago that it's not polite to talk about two things in public, religion and politics. And so what did I do? I became a preacher. And so you expect me every Sunday to stand here and talk about religion, to open the Bible, and talk about what we find in Scripture. And yet, because most all of us in this room know that in just a day or so, we're going to the polls, many of us have already gone to the polls, I want to talk just a little bit about some things that I think Jesus would have us think about. I want us to look at the one time in Scripture where Jesus was drawn into a political conversation. And I think we can learn something from Jesus about how we handle ourselves in times like this when it seems like our nation is so divided and our world is, is so divided. And I think what Jesus is going to teach us today will help us and help our perspectives and opinions about political matters. Now, I want you to breathe easy because in this passage we're going to look at, Jesus does not tell us who to vote for and neither will I. And yet he does say some things that I think are very, very uh, significant. And so in Mark chapter 12, we'll begin in verse 13. And we're going to see that in this particular passage, Jesus makes one of his most famous statements. In fact, this statement he makes in Mark 12 is so well known that we find it in each of the synoptic gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and also in Luke. Now, Jesus in Mark 12 is coming near the end of his ministry, and so he has confrontations with four different sets of leaders. Uh, now Jesus still at this time is, um, has a lot of credibility with the people. The people love him. But the religious leaders, especially um, the Jewish religious leaders, they really don't like Jesus, and so they draw him in to these, to these conversations. And it's an interesting and fascinating study in and of itself to look at each of these four conversations. But today, we're going to look at just one one of these conversations. And so Mark tells us in verse 13 that the chief priests and teachers of the law and elders, they, they send some Pharisees and Herodians in to have a conversation with Jesus. Now, the fascinating thing is the Pharisees and Herodians could not have been more different. In fact, the Pharisees don't like the Herodians at all. The Pharisees are more conservative. They're in touch with the grassroots. They didn't want any part of the Romans that ruled. In fact, the Pharisees, the very word Pharisee means separated ones. They wanted to withdraw from the culture. The Herodians, on the other hand, they were the more elitists. They were in touch with and nearer to the people of power. They were close to Herod and his family, as the name suggests. You know, at this time, Herod was king over Israel, and he'd been put in charge by the Romans. And so imagine, these two groups of people, who could not be more different, had totally different perspectives, and yet they've come together with the singular purpose of derailing Jesus. In fact, Mark is very clear in telling us that their motives are not pure. Though they purport themselves to just come and have a, a casual conversation with Jesus, they just want to talk with him about a few things. Though that's how they, they describe themselves, we know from reading this text their motives are not pure. In fact, Mark tells us that they've come to Jesus with a specific reason to catch him in his words. But before they begin the conversation, what they're going to do is butter him up. Uh, They're going to uh, say things to him like, um, We know, Lord, you are a man of integrity. We know you're not a person who's swayed uh, by the opinions of, of others. No, you're going to teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. They're saying, Lord, we know you are the real deal. And so right after they lavish praise on Jesus, they set the trap. They're trying to put Jesus in an untenable, impossible situation. What they want to happen is that if Jesus, however Jesus responds, he's going to get in trouble with, with all of the people. And so I want you to kind of feel this trap Uh, just a, a little bit. So they come to him and they ask a question. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now, you know as well as I, everybody has their own opinion about taxes. Everybody has their opinion about how many taxes we should pay, how much taxes we should pay, who should pay, when we should pay, and all the rest. So it's a difficult question even today. It's a political hot potato today, but it was a political hot potato then too. And all they want is a simple yes or no answer. But Jesus is not flustered. He's not caught off guard. He knows immediately what they're trying to do. And Jesus is not going to fall for it. And every time I read this passage of Scripture, I walk away smiling to myself because Jesus is just so absolutely brilliant. He's amazing how he handles this question and this situation that he finds himself in. And so Jesus bluntly says to these guys after they ask this question, why are you trying to trap me? He's smart. He reads the room. He knows their motives. He knows exactly what they're trying to do. And so if Jesus, they want a simple yes or no answer. But feel the tension for a moment. If Jesus says, yes, you must pay your taxes, then the common Jewish people would be upset with Jesus. Because Jews, they did not like the Romans, and they did not like the taxes that the Romans were imposing on them. You know at this time that the Romans we're ruling Palestine. And so imagine what it would be like for a moment if, let's just say, another power. Let's say Canada some down, somehow comes down into to our part of the world, and, and we're now under Canadian rule, and Canada levies these heavy taxes. You can imagine how you might feel. Well, imagine how these Jews feel at this moment. And as I said a moment ago, Jesus Jesus has their respect. People generally like Jesus. They like the things he's saying. They like what he is teaching. And so if Jesus just said, well, yes, you should pay, now the Sanhedrin, they they wanted to arrest Jesus all along. But they haven't done it because they know he was popular with the people. But now they would be given the freedom to arrest Jesus. But on the other hand, if Jesus says, In response to this question, well, no, you should not pay tax. Then the Herodians, the other group, we said there are two groups that have come, the Pharisees and the Herodians. Then the Herodians, who were in cahoots with the Romans, would have told Rome about this. And the Romans would come and arrest Jesus. He would be branded an insurrectionist, a troublemaker. It was a win-win situation for the Pharisees and the Herodians But for Jesus, he was put in this difficult spot. What does he say? How does he react? What does he do? He's trapped. But as I said, Jesus is absolutely brilliant. So Jesus looks around, and he asks someone to give him a denarius. Now, it's fascinating that Jesus himself does not have a denarius. A denarius was uh, this coin that was equivalent to a day's wage for the common worker. So it would be like Jesus saying, "Um, who's got a $100 bill? I need a $100 bill. And someone hands him this, this amount of money. And so Jesus takes the money, and on your screen you should see what a denarius looks like. There it is. Jesus is holding the money in his hand. And as you can see from the screen that on the denarius, on one side of this coin is the face of Tiberius, who is the emperor or the Caesar at the time. And though we can't read Latin, the words on the coin were Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. And on the other side of the coin is the phrase Pontifex Maximus, which means high priest, and so it's easy to see why these Jews hated this tax. The coin itself was blasphemous, it was idolatrous. And then Jesus, this amazing teacher, this amazing leader, he doesn't just say yes or no to should they pay the tax. He asks the question whose image is this? And whose inscription? And they respond, Well, it's it's Caesar's. And then Jesus utters those words that are very well known. He mentions them three times, as I said. Jesus says, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And you're thinking, well, that clears everything up, doesn't it? That makes everything plain. No, you're sitting there thinking, well, what does this mean exactly? It sounds kind of like a, a sort of a riddle. What are we to understand from that statement, and what does that statement have to do with 2020 and all the things we struggle with today? Well, let's take for a moment and and look at the first half of that equation, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. Jesus, in essence, is saying we must first avoid the extreme of the Pharisees. You remember just a moment ago we talked about the Pharisees and we said that that the very word Pharisee means separated ones. And so the Pharisees were folks who were tempted to withdraw from culture. They were hostile to the Roman government. And so they just wanted to withdraw from it all. And so we may be tempted to do that even today. We look at all the corruption in in the world, in, in the world of government And we look at all the division in terms of of politics with with the parties and the debates and and all of the rest, and we may just want to throw up our hands and withdraw from it all. I heard one preacher recently say there's so much division that people are politicked off. And that's true, isn't it? And so that's what the, the Pharisees wish to do, and I believe that's an extreme. This can be, this idea of withdrawing being separate, it can be taken to an extreme. I remember when I was growing up, one of the preachers that I heard preach, he said the government is just so corrupt, we should just, we should just withdraw from it all, and we should not pay our taxes. And he listed all the things that the government subsidized that he was uncomfortable with, with which he did not agree, and he said we shouldn't have any part of it. And so he emphasized not paying taxes in the words of the noted theologian Dr. Phil, I'd like to ask him, how's that working for you? I mean, you know, that can be a pretty difficult thing, can't it? I mean, we have this entity called the IRS, and if we take it to this extreme, and we do that, we're going to have a knock on the door, and we'll be in trouble. And so, I think when we read this phrase, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, I I think the Lord is saying, you be a good citizen. You You pay your taxes. And And just because we pay our taxes, understand it doesn't mean we will always agree with everything we see going on in our our government. But we understand Jesus, I think, is teaching us here we have a certain obligation to the government that we're under, whether we live in this country or whether we live in some other country. And it was that way in the first century, and it's this way in the 21st century. We're to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Paul will tell us later in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and following, that the governing authorities have, in fact, been established by God himself. So giving back to Caesar, I think, also implies that we should obey the laws of the land, with the caveat being the laws of the land do not contradict God's laws. There's a place for peaceful protest. There's a place for civil disobedience. We see this in Scripture. For instance, you may recall after Jesus had already uh, went to the cross and, and he, he died and was raised, and then he, after 40 days he ascended to be with his, his Father. The Holy Spirit comes upon the people who were gathered to pray in the early part of Acts. And you have Pentecost, and thousands of men and women come to Christ. The church is established, and then Peter and the rest of the apostles, they fan out in their preaching. And they're in Jerusalem at least until Acts 8-1 when persecution comes on the church. But while they're in Jerusalem preaching, the Sanhedrin doesn't like it at all that they're talking about Jesus. They feel threatened as a result of this. And so they drag Peter in. And you recall that famous line. They told Peter, do not speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And Peter said, we must obey God rather than man. So there's a sense in which, yes, we're to obey the laws of the land unless those laws of the land are in conflict with God's law. I think Jesus' words also here, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, I think his words also imply that we can vote. Now, I know that's a big relief to some of you who've already cast your vote to know that it's okay, but not everyone, understand, takes this position I don't know if you read in the September issue of the Christian Chronicle, but there's an article in there about about how some among us are so turned off by the divisive politics that they have in fact decided not to vote. This was the perspective, you may or may not know, but this was the perspective of David Lipscomb. Lipscomb was this very prominent leader among us who lived and worked between the time of the Civil War to World War I. And uh, Lipscomb University is named in his honor. He founded that entity, and he founded the Gospel Advocate, among other things. And from his perspective, I I think the Civil War had such an impact on his life that he almost threw his hands up and he said, you know, my allegiance is to the kingdom of God. And so he advocated the position that we should not, cannot vote. And there are some who take this position, And yet I think when I read this passage where Jesus is confronted by these religious leaders and he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, I think this makes room for God's people to participate in some way in our system. We're citizens of the earthly city and the heavenly city and understand we have duties and we have responsibilities in both. And so I do believe we can and should vote and pray for our leaders and stay informed and be good citizens. Now, let's take a moment and look at the other side of the equation. We're also to give give what is to, God, uh, to give God what is God's. If on one hand there's this extreme of the Pharisees, The Pharisees were the separated ones. The Pharisees were the ones who withdrew from culture, who were in fact hostile to the government. We can also make the mistake of the Herodians. The Herodians were far too enmeshed with the government. They were so enmeshed in the system that they gave Caesar more than his due. Now, as we think about that phrase that Jesus made there's an insight that might not be apparent immediately if you think about it you can you can see it when he says give to god what is what is god's he's making a subtle but but powerful statement against idolatry just to remind you idolatry is when we make lesser things into ultimate things. I know when you think of the archaic word idolatry, you think of, of golden calves uh, and you think of statues and all the rest. Yet at its, at its heart, idolatry is making lesser things ultimate things. So think about all the areas in our lives that can be idolatrous. We think about money. Oh, it's a great thing to be able to spend money and save money and give money. That's wonderful. And to have jobs where we make money, but if we're not careful, that beca- can become our idol. Well, how can it become our idol? It's when we make that the ultimate thing. Or what about our careers? I mean, it's wonderful to have a job. and In fact, if you've ever been without a job, you know how wonderful it is to have a job. And yet, as important and good as our jobs are, if we're not careful, that lesser thing can become the ultimate thing. You've seen people, right, who've sacrificed everything for their career. Uh, They've sacrificed a family or a marriage or whatever because the career became the idol. Or think for a moment about, as we think about this season of, of, of the year, if we're not careful, we can turn a candidate or a party, which is a lesser thing, into the ultimate thing. And if we make our political party, whatever perspective we have, or our candidate, candidate, whomever we like, into the ultimate thing, that person or that party becomes our idol. The truth is, Caesar is not God. He does not rule over all of life. Caesar can regulate our conduct to some degree the government has domain over certain aspects of our lives, and Jesus is okay with that. But that domain is limited. And so the question that, that I've wrestled with this week is, so what is God do? or to give to God what is God's. What are we to give to the Lord? Well, think of it this way. Caesar's image is on the coin. Whose image is on us? Whose image should be on our hearts and our souls? Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, the Lord says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. We have a stamp, an inscription on us. We belong to him, and because of this, God alone deserves our deepest affection, our ultimate loyalty. He alone deserves our worship. In the first century men and women were martyred because they would not say Caesar is lord, but they shouted that was all that was within them, Jesus is lord. And so let me give you a, a couple of of practical implications of all of this that I think might be helpful to us, especially over the next uh, few days. Uh, Here's the first. Our primary hope and allegiance is to the kingdom of God, and nothing will change that Tuesday night. Regardless of who wins on Tuesday, God is still on the throne. Amen? Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the president above all presidents. All other earthly identities that seek to define us and divide us are secondary. Political loyalties can never be as broad and deep as the bond that unites us in Christ. Here's the second important implication. Because we bear the image of Jesus, we're to treat one another with love and respect, even when we disagree politically. One of my favorite verses, and you've heard me quote it a lot, because I think this verse can help our marriages. I think this verse can help our church. uh, This verse will help us, I think, relate well to others who are lost It's Ephesians 4.29, where Paul says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up, that it may benefit those who listen according to their needs. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, pause. It's a fascinating thought to, to know that we can make the Holy Spirit sad. What is it that makes the Holy Spirit sad? It's the things that we say to each other, uh, to to outsiders. We need to be very careful with our words. And then he says, and I, I love this part of the Scripture, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as in Christ God has forgiven you. And he says, get rid of all rage and anger and bitterness. So here's the question Can we love unconditionally while we disagree politically? And if we're disciples of Jesus, the resounding answer to that is yes. It would be a great victory for Satan if he could use Caesar to somehow put a wedge in or divide the church of God. And so here's what I want you to know. If you vote for President Donald Trump, I love you. If you vote for former Vice President Joe Biden, I love you. If you vote for Kanye West, I love you. If you Take the opinion that, well, I just cannot vote. I'll love you just the same. Our identity is in Christ, and that is far greater than any other lesser identity that we might have. And so I love what Rick Ashley has said recently. He said, I love my country, but I love the kingdom more. I will not give any party or person what only belongs to God. My love for you does not depend upon your voting like me. My hope is tethered to a resurrection of the past and return in the future. My mission is to invite all to surrender to the reign of God. My allegiance is to Jesus alone who is King of kings and Lord of lords. I want you to listen again to these very brilliant words from Jesus that that say so much. Jesus says to us, give back to Caesar. What is Caesar's? And give to God. What is God? We need to be very careful that we don't make either the mistake of the Pharisees, the separated ones who so pulled away from culture that they didn't have any engagement and they lacked influence. Or on the other hand, we need to be very careful. We don't make the mistake of the Herodians who were so enmeshed with the powers that be, so enmeshed with the government that they lost their real sense of identity. Scott Sauls, he put it like this. Flourishing will not come through the reign of an elephant from the right or a donkey from the left, but a lamb from Judah, who is also the lion of Judah. He will reign not through the halls of power, but through the love of his people. Amen. And so always remember this. While Caesar gets some of the coins, because we're disciples of Jesus, he gets all of our life. And so today, if the Lord hasn't had all of of your life maybe you've never made the step of baptism perhaps you've never said I'm ready to trust Jesus and give my life to him he will be my highest allegiance then there's no better day than today for you to do that or on the other hand you may say to yourself you know I've just I've let other things cloud who who I am and what I'm about and I'm ultimately about Jesus we can pray for you or help you in any way we can come as we stand and sing